Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but the zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes about this righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask... Did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. No, that's not the school bell going off telling you that it's, uh, <laughs> it's lunchtime. That was actually uh, meant to be there. The uh, 1987 classic song by U2, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Six to eight are heading out, sorry. I thought they uh, had already gone. Actually, while they head out, let's, uh, let's pray before we get into this. Father God, we uh, thank you for your word and we ask that you would... You would teach us now, that you would remind us, that you would shape us, that we would know you better, that we would love you more, that we would live your way. Amen. Well, the, uh, that uh, classic song from the 80s, um, show of hands, who, who's you know, familiar with this song? Yeah, we've got most hands. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm a little nervous how this will go down at uh, night church tonight, but it um, uh, might be a generational thing. It, 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 it was and continues to be something of an anthem of our age. 
think he could say, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. We're searching, we're, we're looking for something. We're looking for someone who will satisfy, who will fulfill us. But despite our efforts, we're left unfulfilled. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Now, I understand the lead singer and songwriter Bono is a man of faith, uh, but he said in an interview with Rolling Stones magazine that the song is really an anthem more of doubt than of faith. We long for, we search, we strive to attain, but we fail to find what we're looking for. There's, there's a hunger, there's a, a need for connection, for relationship, for fulfilment. And of course, ultimately, the Bible tells us whether people realize it or not, everyone has a fundamental need for relationship with God, for connection, for restoration, for reconciliation with God, our Creator, for salvation, for peace with God. Now, given that need that everyone has and given people's searching and striving, we might ask, why is it that so many people have not found God? So many people do not know God. And I feel that. Perhaps you do too. I think of my, my neighbours. I think of the people in my street. I think of the, the thousands of people who live in this local area who don't know God, quietly going about their lives, so many searching, striving, and yet they don't know God. Without Christ, they're lost. And when it comes to, when it comes to knowing God... There's, there's a real irony, there's a paradox to this search. Now, one writer expressed it this way in a commentary I was reading on the book of Romans. He says, Christianity is not about people seeking God and finding him. It's about some people seeking God and not finding him, while others do not seek him but are found by him. God has a way of turning things on its head. On their, on their head, and he certainly does this when it comes to us seeking God. The writer continues, if Christianity was about people seeking God and finding him, the new creation would be a prig sty full of stuck-up prigs boasting about how sensible they were to seek him and how clever to have searched so effectively. Instead, it would be full of people with looks of amazement on their faces, astonished at the kindness of the Christ who first found them. How do people find God? Or more to the point, how do they get found by God? Well, the Apostle Paul delves into this in today's passage as, as he wrestles with and addresses the question of why so many of his own people, the Israelites, were not saved, despite their apparent seeking. And like us, Paul could look to his Jewish neighbours, the people in his street, the thousands who lived around him, and conclude that whilst they've pursued some way of knowing God, they have not attained their goal. They still haven't found what they're looking for. Now, if you are here last week, you'd know that this is, uh, you'll remember that, that Romans 9 to 11, as Ben explained, is kind of one continued uh, argument from Paul addressing the relationship between the church and Israel. And so this is, this is part two of a, a three-part sermon. And Paul is, 
is answering the question or the charge we looked at last week in 9 verse 6, that the question, has God's word failed? Is, is he unfaithful? I mean, if he said in the Old Testament that, that Israel would be saved, well, how come so many of them reject Jesus? I mean, if they're God's chosen people, what, what's gone wrong? Has God not done what he said he'd do? And if that's the case, well, what does that do for us? And our assurance, I mean, will he not do what he said he will do for us? That's the, the question that Paul has begun to address. And we saw last week, he, he said that God's plan was, was never to save all physical descendants of Abraham. He's always been the God of promise and of election and choosing to save a remnant of Israel. That was always God's plan. Well, then secondly, in today's passage, Paul addresses the the reality that many of the Israelites are not saved. And he shows why this is the case. And as he does that, he shines a light for us on the nature of the Christian faith and, and how it is that we and the, the thousands of people around us can, can fail to find God or can be wonderfully and graciously found by God. And at first we might think that, well, these questions of, of ancient Israelites and whether they're saved or not, we might think, well, that's, that's got nothing to do with us. And if we do think that, we ought to uh, remember that fundamentally the Bible is actually not about us. And uh, this has much to teach us about God and, and how he relates to his people. But also, there, there are actually many parallels between the story of the Jews and our story. And the story of many people who seek to know God. Uh, Romans 10 addresses what is a, or what was an ancient issue, but it also addresses what I think is the most common misunderstanding of Christianity today. So what does Romans 10 teach us? Well, Paul tells us that there are, are two paths to righteousness that people pursue. Uh, Paul introduced this at the end of uh, chapter 9, at the end of last week's passage. You'll see it on the screen or just turn back in your Bibles uh, chapter 9, verse 30, he says, What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. Now, Paul's made very clear early on in the early chapters of Romans that, that a right standing before God, or righteousness, is something that comes from God to us as a gift. We receive the gift by, by faith, by, by trust in God, trust in Christ and in what he's done for us in his death and his resurrection to bring us forgiveness, to make us right with God. And Paul says Gentile, non-Jewish Christians who didn't pursue righteousness, they've received this gift by faith. They've been declared right with God, whereas many Jews didn't get this and they went about things the wrong way. They, verse 31, pursued the law as the way of righteousness. They pursued righteousness as if it were by works, trying to keep the law of Moses, trying, trying to do all the right things thinking, well, that will give them a good standing with God. And in doing that, they rejected Christ. 
the one from whom righteousness comes. They stumbled over the stumbling stone of Christ, as the end of chapter 9 says. Now, this way of going about things is, is not peculiar to ancient Israel. Uh, many people today pursue righteousness, pursue a right standing before God by observing religious practices, by church attendance, by rituals and ceremonies, by Bible reading and spiritual disciplines and fasting and praying and eating and drinking certain things or not eating and drinking certain things, or doing all these things in order to somehow attain a right standing with God. And that's what so many of the Jews tried to do, thinking that, that keeping the law of Moses was the way to righteousness. And the problem, the problem for them wasn't a lack of effort. You know, there was plenty of zeal. As Paul says in chapter 10, verse 2, he says, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Now, Paul himself was a, a zealous Israelite. Uh, Paul was so zealous for God that before he, before he came to Christ, he sought to destroy the early followers of Jesus. He saw them as a heretical threat to God. He was zealous for God, as were many of the Israelites. But as he says, their zeal was not based on knowledge. And his being sincere is not enough. Sincerity is not an indicator of truth. And I think this is an important lesson, in fact, for us in the current context in which we live. This context where the opinions and the convictions of the individual, they're kind of held up as the ultimate authority. If you sincerely believe something, well, that's what matters most, says our world. And any contradictory claim from some external authority must be viewed with suspicion and must be dismissed. Now, the, the zeal and sincerity of the individual, that's what's supreme in our cultural context. And yet it's a nonsense. I mean, being sincere is not enough. You can be sincere and wrong. I mean, before a certain point in history, people sincerely believed that the earth was flat. Their zeal was not based on knowledge. And this is true for all of us. All of us have at some point uh, thought and believed things that we, and we hold to our position with, with great conviction only to then discover that we're wrong. Our zeal is not based on knowledge. This was true for many of the Israelites. They had zeal but were going about things the wrong way. So verse 3 says, Since they did not know the righteousness of God that and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, but rather thought that, that law-keeping was the way to go, the way to establish their righteousness. They'd missed the point, and they'd missed the crucial point, which verse 4 says, and this really is the key verse in the chapter, verse 4, Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. The culmination of the law, as, as some um, translations put it, the end of the law. That, that is the end point, the goal, the, the fulfillment, the, the destination point that the law is directed towards. The culmination of the law is Christ. And this is a, a profound and important truth. The purpose of the law, the Old Testament law, the purpose of it was, was not to provide Israelites with a way for them 
to achieve their own righteousness. I mean, it could have if they were able to perfectly keep and obey the law, but they didn't. None of them obeyed perfectly, as none of us would obey God's law perfectly. The law was not given as a way for people to to achieve their own righteousness. Rather, the law was given to bring people to realise their need of a righteousness from God, their need of God's Christ, the one who would, who would perfectly keep the law on their behalf and so fulfil it, the one who would provide righteousness as a gift to be received by faith. So the law was always designed to lead them to faith in God's promises, to point them to their need of the coming Christ. It's not like the, the Old Testament law was kind of Plan A, well, let, let's see if Israel can earn their own righteousness by, by law-keeping. Oh, no, that didn't work. Oh, well, um, uh, well plan B, I'll, we'll scrap the law and, and, and I'll send Jesus instead. It's, I think we can tend to sort of think of it along those lines, but that's not what God did. The law was given to point people to Christ. And even though they didn't know the details of of how that salvation would come, the response of Israel was always meant to be one of faith, of trust in God's promises. I think a beautiful picture of what Old Testament Israel was to be like is Simeon in in Luke chapter 2. You might have read read Simeon in Luke chapter 2. He's described there as, as an Israelite who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the coming of the Christ. Christ is the, the culmination of the law. And this is not just a, a kind of convenient idea that Paul came up with to, you know, to flesh out his argument in Romans uh, chapter 10. This is the consistent message of the Bible. Let me show you, like, uh, like when Jesus spoke to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus said, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Notice all the Old Testament scriptures that concern Jesus. Similarly, a few verses on in Luke 24, 44, he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses the prophets and the Psalms. Uh, or Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. Or 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. But no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Or 1 Peter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven." Or John 5, verse 39, talking to to some of the Jews, mostly Pharisees, Jesus said, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Or Acts 10, verse 43, 
All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You can see all the prophets testify about Jesus. Again and again, the New Testament teaches that the the Old Testament moves towards Christ and is complete in Christ. It all points towards the idea that righteousness, that justification, that, that being declared right with God comes through faith, not works. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes, everyone who has faith. Well then to show, to show that this was, has always been God's plan, Paul then quotes an, a number of passages from the Old Testament. Firstly in verse 5 he says, uh, Moses writes this, about the righteousness that is by the law, the person who does these things will live by them. That is, if you do what the law says perfectly, will you be fine? Because of the nature of our sin, it's impossible for us to perfectly do what the law says. The, the law provides rather an opportunity for our sinful nature to be shown for what it is. The law doesn't make me righteous. It just makes me conscious of my own sin. And so the way forward is the righteousness that is by faith, verse 6, which says, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. And this may seem a little bit confusing at first with this this talk of ascending to heaven or descending to the deep. Um, What's going on here is Paul is quoting uh, Moses from Deuteronomy 30. And he's showing that, that even back then, the law was pointing forward to Christ, to the righteousness that comes from God by faith. Deuteronomy 30 is the end of a a big sermon that Moses delivered to the people of Israel as they're on the the edge of the promised land. And he's he's given them God's law and he's told them what they need to do. And then he says, don't don't think it's beyond you such that you you need someone to to climb to heaven to get it for you. It's it's been given to you. It's near you. It's, It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. And so Paul quotes this and he says, look, in the same way, you have it all. You don't need someone to ascend to heaven or descend to the deep. Christ has already done that. It's already been done for you. It's been given to you. In fact, verse 8, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. What's the message? Verse 9, if you declare With your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. This is how you and I and the tens of thousands of people who live around us, anyone, whether whether Jew or Gentile, verse 12 says, any of us can be saved. Believing and declaring that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. 
Friends, this may be a familiar truth, but this is, this is liberating and this is transformational. It's liberating because salvation is it's not about me pulling up my socks and trying harder and doing better and desperately trying and, but failing to live a perfect life. Or even worse, carrying on in a hypocritical delusion of, of self-made righteousness. It's liberating that Jesus has done it all for me, for you. He died for us. He, he descended to the dead, bearing the punishment for our sin. He rose to life, ascended on high as Lord and Saviour and gives salvation as a gift to be received in faith, in, in trust, in dependence. It's liberating. But it's also profoundly transformational. It, it transforms our life. Because to believe, that is to have faith, to trust, that is to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and therefore it's to believe that he is Lord and King. And if he is Lord and King, then, then he's my Lord and King. He's your Lord and King, if your faith is in him. To accept Jesus as Saviour is to accept him as Lord. The, the two must go together. And if Jesus is Lord, well, that means he's in charge. He's in charge of your life. He, your decisions, your priorities, your relationships, your behaviour, how you spend your time and your money. He transforms everything such that you, you find life as it's meant to be lived. Now that transformation that may be worked out bit by bit over, over a long period of time throughout the rest of our lives, but that transformation begins by declaring with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's, that's the overflow of a heart that says, Jesus, you're in charge. Please lead me in my life. I want to follow you. Now, that's a decision that I expect um, many or most of you have made, perhaps for some of you many years ago, and you're, you're continuing to, to live that out, your faith in, with Jesus as, as your Lord and, and Jesus as your Saviour. But there may be some here this morning who, who haven't taken that step. At least not yet. That step of coming before God in, in humility, in faith, receiving Jesus as Saviour, submitting to him as your Lord. Maybe you've been searching. Maybe you've been seeking fulfilment in all sorts of things. Maybe even seeking God through your own efforts of, of, of trying to be good. Or maybe, maybe you've been going through the motions, putting on a kind of religious facade, but actually, if you're honest, when you look at your life and your decisions and your relationships and your priorities and your behaviour and how you spend your time and money, there's no real evidence that Jesus is actually Lord. If that's you, it's time to come clean and get real. It's time to hear the promise of God's word. In verse 13, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want to say, if you need to take that, that liberating and transformational step of declaring Jesus is Lord, do it. Don't put it off. Paul's 
explained how righteousness from God by faith, that was always God's plan. And it's available to all who call on the name of the Lord. He then goes on to explain, well, what's needed in order for that to happen, for people to do that? So he says, verse 14, How then can they call on the name, call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This has been described as the, the logic of evangelism. In order to, to call on Jesus, people need to believe in Jesus. And to believe in Jesus, people need to hear of Jesus. And to hear of Jesus, people, someone needs to preach Jesus and for someone to preach, they need to be sent. In short, how can people call on the name of Jesus and be saved unless people are sent to preach the gospel? Now, I think there's a challenge and an encouragement here for us. Uh, this passage is often used to, uh, to, to point to overseas mission and the importance of, of sending people overseas to preach the gospel. And that's right and that's important. And yet we have a we have a massive mission field around us, much closer to home. Our neighbours, the people in our street, the tens of thousands of people in this local area who are not yet saved, they, they need the beautiful feet of people who bring them the gospel. Can we be sent? Can we support the sending of others? So this is, this is a challenge, and this may be a challenge to us. Perhaps the, it pushes us outside our comfort zone. I mean, the thought of asking someone if they want to sit down for a coffee and have a look at what the Bible actually says, that may challenge us. But it's not only a challenge, it's also a wonderful opportunity because God's appointed means of seeing people call on the name of Jesus and be saved, that that can include us and, and apparent, our apparently beautiful feet as we make ourselves available. There's a, a wonderful privilege and opportunity that God can use us. But how can we be sent? And how can we support the sending of others? We ought to reflect on that. Take that to heart and, and take action. Um, now, Paul himself, of course, was, he was caught up in this. He was sent to preach. And he did that praying that people would hear and believe and call on the name of, of Jesus and be saved, and many did. And yet many didn't. As he says in the last section of our passage this morning. So from verse 16 he says, But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So the problem was not that Israel didn't have the message, they did, but they rejected it, as Paul shows uh, by quoting a number of Old Testament passages. Many in Israel, didn't, they didn't combine hearing with believing. They combined it with defiance and disobedience. As Paul quotes Isaiah in verse 21, he says, But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So many people in Israel of old along with many people today, reject the gospel of God's grace. 
which kind of brings us full circle and leads us to some implications. That is, there are many around us who are not yet saved, our neighbours, the people of our street, the tens of thousands of people in this area. How do we respond to that reality? We might be tempted to kind of bury our head in the sand and just kind of ignore reality. That's not what Paul does, and that's not what he teaches here in Romans 10. As as he considers the state of many of his own people, he says back in verse 1, you might have noticed I skipped over verse 1. He says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. His heart's desire is for their salvation and so his, his prayer to God is for their salvation. As he faces the, the need around him, he doesn't throw his hands in the air, he doesn't bury his head in the sand, he, he does two things. Firstly, he prays to God that they may be saved. And secondly, as we see later on in the passage, he preaches the good news of the gospel. And there's an example for us. Pray and preach. Keep praying for others to be saved. A few weeks back, Gav gave us a a share card. Are you using a share card? I encourage you to use that to to, to remind you to, to, to pray diligently that people would be saved. Pray. God answers prayer. And secondly, preach. Look look for opportunities to point people to Jesus, to share the good news that's found in him. Maybe you could invite someone to to read the Bible with you. There's an excellent resource called The Word One-to-One. It's a little resource you can sit down, copy for you, copy for your friend, and just it works slowly through John's Gospel. Asks the questions and gives the answers. You you just need to know how to turn a page. That's basically the only skill that's required. and, And read. Um, it's a great resource. Look for opportunities to, to share the gospel, to point people to Jesus. Or use the preaching of others. Invite someone along to explaining Christianity next time that we, we run it. So There's the first implication. Pray and preach so that people call on the name of the Lord and are saved. Second implication Don't pursue righteousness by works. Don't fall into the trap, and and this can be within all of us as we we seek to establish ourselves. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that we can earn God's favour by being religious, by being moral. There are plenty of good and right and, and helpful things for us to do. But our standing before God doesn't depend on the good and right and helpful things that we do. Our righteousness is from God by faith. Faith in Christ our Lord and our Saviour. Jesus is our Saviour. Jesus is our Lord. Remember that and hang on to that wonderfully liberating and transformational truth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you that our righteousness before you, our right standing before you doesn't depend on us seeking and finding you, us striving to attain a a level of good behaviour. We thank you that in Christ you have sought us and 
found us. You've graciously given us the gift of righteousness. Father, I pray for any here this morning who have not yet accepted this gift of salvation, bowed their knee before Jesus, acknowledging him as Lord. Father, please move in their hearts that they may call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And Father, we do pray as, as Paul prayed for those around us, for our, our friends, our family, our neighbours, the, the tens of thousands in the surrounding area who do not yet know Jesus. Father, please send people to share the gospel that they may hear, believe, call upon Jesus and be saved. Father, send even us, use us, speak the good news and use us to support others who speak the good news. And we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.